Good morning. John chapter 11. Let's continue on in our Lazarus narrative this morning. Welcome to all of our guests who are here. You probably were given a gift on your way in. If you weren't, we'd love to give you a gift on your way out. Uh, we want to recognize your guest presence with us here today. Uh, we believe that you're here. God led you here, and we hope you're encouraged. We'd love to get a chance to meet you. So following the service, heading right out the door a bit to the back here to the left, you'll see a little coffee counter there. We'll have some folks there to greet you, to get to know you. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to stay just for a moment or two and um, enjoy the fellowship as we get to know you. Uh, pray for Pastor Mark. Are they back yet? Still traveling back from New Hampshire. I had an opportunity to speak to a camp. I believe a family camp there. Praise God for that opportunity for him. And um, I'm imagining they're traveling back today. And that's a, about a 10 or 11 hour trip. Um, looking forward to our prayer month, as Pastor Mike said. All of you who disciple and lead Bible studies will gather in here for some really good preaching. Uh, first person to lead us off is Pastor Hobbes, as he said. We're looking forward to that. His, his flock is gathering with us. And, um, look forward to that time of fellowship as well. Are you tired? How many of you are tired? Raise your hand. All right. That's about 90% of us. Pastor Steve described all the reasons why we're probably tired. And uh, can I tell you something? I haven't been this tired on a Sunday morning I can remember in recent history. Um, uh, I think ever since those sirens went off Thursday night, I don't know that I've slept well, and one of those nights was in Iowa, um, Friday night into Saturday. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we're here. Um, uh, our interpreter over here tells me that he's tired. Uh, he flew in at 2.15 a.m. last night, from what I understand. Um, I was right before him about 12.45 a.m., um, just praising God for our our protection. I had the opportunity to preach four times from Friday night at 7 a.m. to Friday night at 7 p.m. See, I'm tired. Um, to Saturday afternoon at 1 p.m. Drove two hours back to the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. Um, waited. Waited. Flew back. And um, we're here. Thank God for his protection. Last night was really strange. I was coming out of the cloud deck to land in Cleveland, and it was a really low cloud deck last night. You're just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. wonder if you're going to hit the ground in fog. I don't know. And you come out of the cloud deck, and uh, you start to see some city lights, neighborhood lights. And as soon as we come out of the cloud deck, that pilot saw something or heard of something that he needed to get away from. I'd never, never had this before in my life. And as soon as we came out of the cloud deck, he yanked that stick back and we were I've, I've never climbed so quickly <laughs> out of the way so it's like oh, it's been a really long week you know we're going to finish it with a white knuckler here and, um, and he calmly comes back on after we ascend again and, and I think they're trained to speak calmly under pressure I'm sure they are because whatever he did probably made him as nervous as we are if not more so very professional. Sorry about that, folks. We'll be back on the ground after we circle in about 10 minutes. I guess I'll never know what he was avoiding, <laughs> but uh, 
nonetheless, here we are. We thank God for his protection all the way around. And uh, there's a number of folks, quite a few that texted me this morning that wish they could be here. Uh, they're unable to because of still cleaning up their yards and without power and so forth. Um, a number of families can't even join us by live stream uh, because they have no internet. The one dad said, I'm kind of glad it's down. It's a little bit more peaceful around here. But nonetheless, they miss, they miss being here and we miss them. But thank you for being here. And let's read together. I'll speak a little bit more loudly. Uh, for those of you who are guests, I don't normally do this, but there is the speaker just came back on, so now I won't. <laughs> All right, maybe it's me. It's my fault. Okay, well, it is, kind of. This one was on. That was my fault. I, I hate walking around before church with this thing on my ear. Like, it's like walking up to a guest and shaking their hand. You know, if they see this thing in my ear, what are they thinking? They don't first think that you're this pastor and you've got it. What are they thinking? They think I'm probably some kind of security guard person. And then what's wrong with this church? We've got a bunch of people walking around with these things. You know, what are they fearing? We don't fear anything but God. Uh, but anyways, sorry about that, fellas. We're ready to go. Gay Bailey's here. Hi, Gay, with her sweet daughter. Welcome. And uh, I know a number of folks are going to look forward to giving you a hug after church. Welcome back to our kids who are here for schooling in the area. Great to see you again and looking forward to a semester of fellowship together. So, uh, Christmas is right around the corner and uh, we're looking forward to Christmas program with all these kids and and um, I'm looking forward to that time together with you all and praise God. All right, now that you've verified that I have not slept much since Thursday night, let's look at God's word uh, in John chapter 11. We're just going to read the text. Um, as we stated when we began the Lazarus narrative, there are four major sections to this narrative, and we're going to dive in to the next this morning. And this narrative includes three interactions Jesus himself has upon arriving in Bethany, one with Martha, one with Mary, and then a passive interaction, basically through an observation he makes of the Jewish people who are there in great company, in size, mourning uh, the loss of Lazarus with uh, his family. And then these mourning Jewish people will make an observation of Jesus. And we'll see that this morning. But let's, let's read here, beginning in verse 17, Jesus coming to Bethany, which means house of poverty. Now, Generally, this town was probably uh, comprised of a demographic of, of more poor people, but apparently Lazarus and his family was quite a prominent family, and we think that might be uh, maybe one of the most wealthy families in this poverty-stricken city or town. Uh, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see that, that Mary uh, washes and anoints Jesus' feet with a very, very expensive flask of oil, which may get be a good indication that they were more wealthy than most in this town. But nonetheless, uh, this is Bethany. And Jesus is coming to visit a family that we know that he loved dearly and they loved him. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. That's Lazarus. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about one 
about two miles off. It's literally 1.72 miles away from Jerusalem. We know that it's on a road that leads to Jericho. This would have been a very prominent road of entrance and egress from Jerusalem for those that would come to Jerusalem uh, to, to worship at Pentecost, Passover. This was a well-traveled road and Bethany's a little exit off this well-traveled road and many would have been familiar with this town. Verse 19, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother and Martha therefore when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, and even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even, who, even he who comes into this world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews who were with her, Mary in the house and consoling her, when they saw that she got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, it's kind of a repeat of verse 21, what her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Now that's a verb we'll see as mentioned here and in the beginning of verse 38. It's a verb that's rarely used in the New Testament, pretty much exclusively in the Gospels. It's a powerful statement of uh, explanation of Christ's emotions. We'll look at it here in just a little bit. He was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled and said, where have you lain him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man, they're referring to the man born blind that we discussed in John 9, have kept this man also from dying. Now next Sunday we'll consider the miracle itself in verses 38 to 44. This morning, let's consider this next section and these various interactions of a story that we're very familiar with by now. So Jesus arrives in Bethany. 
We find out immediately that he is informed that Lazarus has been dead for four days. And this is important for so many reasons, this, this fact. But quite frankly, it ties directly into verse 4 of the passage we've already preached on. Do you remember when the messenger comes and delivers the letter to Jesus from the sisters? Informing him that the, the friend, the man that he loves is, is quite ill. And Jesus responds in verse 4, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Lazarus' sickness would not culminate in final physical death or spiritual death. God the Father and the Son would be glorified. Yes, Lazarus is dead, but his decaying body would live, and only our life-giving Father in the Son would receive the glory for what's about to happen. We'll look at next week. So we don't need to go into all the gruesome details of what happens to a, to a body when it's been dead for four days. Uh, Google would be sufficient enough for you on that regard. We, we certainly don't want to go through those details. I've, I've looked up those details, and I've determined that they're not appropriate to go through on a Sunday morning service. Uh, but the decay of a body, especially in this time when there's no embalming, where the body is immediately wrapped up the day of its death, and spices are uh, saturate the grave clothing uh, because... The decay happens so rapidly in this particular culture, even beginning within the first um, few hours after death. But we can be confident that by four days, from all that I've studied, you medical people would know that Lazarus's body would be beyond recognition in this culture at this time. So much has happened in these four days since Lazarus has died. Within this first day, mourners would have gathered. We saw that in verse 19. Lazarus would have been prepared for burial. A tomb would have been selected. And a procession taking his body from the home to the tomb would have all occurred within the first day. By the time Jesus arrives, he's been buried for almost the fullness of, of four days. It was customary at this time for people to mourn the loss of a loved one for a week, for seven days. And they would mourn for 12 hours a day. This mourning would have included family and friends, obviously, uh, Jewish acquaintances. And some Jews would have not been so familiar in a, in, a, in a deep manner with Lazarus and his family, but because they were a more prominent family, they would have been compelled to come and mourn with the family. So in addition to these three groups, if the family, which we think they may have been more financially prominent in this poverty-stricken community, um, if they were wealthy enough, then Lazarus's sister Mary and Martha it was custom to even go out and hire professional mourners. 
So if and when friends and immediate family got tired of mourning and they needed to take a break, the professional mourners could continue the refrain of mourning, and that would happen for 12 hours a day for seven days. After the funeral procession and the burial, there would be a, an equal, equally significant and orderly procession back to the home where a meal would have been prepared. They would eat in rotation, so while some were having a meal, others could mourn and then vice versa. This mourning would include a loud wailing at times and crying in rhythms throughout the whole day. It was the Jewish tradition for folks to mourn periodically and consistently so for up to a whole month after someone was buried. 30 days. You may not have seen it, but what we see in verses 17, 18, and 19 is a culture that has a deep respect for the deceased. A deep respect for the deceased. In our, in our, in our time, someone dies, right? We, uh, we typically don't see the body until, and even if nowadays, uh, there's an open casket viewing. I don't know what's happening in our culture, but open casket viewings are even happening less and less. And we live in a culture that seems to, um, and I want to say this carefully, I don't, I don't think we do this wittingly. I think we do this unwittingly. We live in a culture that seems to want to deny the death of somebody by how quickly we move things along and how the body is hidden and sometimes never to be seen and how quickly the graveside and the internment happens and then we, we just move on and I don't know that God has created us in his image to comprehend death endure the grief of death and then persevere in, in the days, weeks, and months sometimes years after the passing of someone, I don't know that he's created us to endure it that easily so there's a lot of messaging here to us personally about respect for the deceased and also the way we grieve someone special to us who has died. So kind of keep that in mind as we, as we move through it here. So somehow amidst all this week of travail, Martha hears that Jesus is nearing the town and she goes out to meet him. We're going to learn much of this dear lady in the next few verses that we've already read. She seems to have matured quite a bit since the first time we met her in Luke 10. Some of you might remember that story. There she's the busy sister, hurrying around taking care of the hospitality side of things when Jesus visits their home. In her nervous hurriedness, Martha even complains to Jesus that she needs help from Jesus straightening her sister up who finds it to be the better choice to sit at Jesus' feet and worship him and neglect her hospitality duties. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, 
right? Mary's chosen the better thing. And that made Martha quite agitated. But apparently this is sometime after that event. And the lady that is first now addressing and finding Jesus, Mary's second, has grown up a lot. She's matured a lot. Now, there's a lot of authors and there's a lot of preachers that don't give her credit for this maturity that to me is evident in the text. They still feel the statement that she makes to Jesus after addressing him with respect with the word Lord. When she says, if you would have been here, my, my brother would not have died. They look at that as, uh, as another anxious statement, an immature statement uh, made from a woman who's still fretting and, and, and existing in the, in the milieu of grief. I don't think so only because of what we find in the following verses. She's grown in her spiritual maturity. She's grown in the understanding of her doctrine, her, her theology, particularly in two doctrines, her eschatology, her understanding of future things for saved people, and in her Christology, her understanding of her rabbi her teacher. So this statement in verse 21 is really a statement of fact. Lord, we didn't even ask you to come. We just sent you a letter informing you that our brother was sick. We knew your ministry load was very heavy. We know that they were hunting you down to kill you not far off from where our home is. We didn't expect you to come. But we know that if you would have been here, you probably would have healed him and and quite frankly, Jesus probably would have. So this is a statement of fact, my friends. Our brother would be alive if you were here. And we're okay that you weren't and that he's not. We're grieving, but we trust you. We trust you. And I would just say for us, quite frankly, for me, when I was studying this text, I thought, wow, what, what a great reminder to me regarding how patient God is with our spiritual growth. His grace molds us through each and every good time or trial he providentially allows to come our way. And God knows our hearts, most importantly, doesn't he? Jesus knew Martha's heart. He knows why he's come to Bethany, but for Martha, she's grown now to desire the better thing her sister Mary first chose some time ago. She leaves quite a large company of mourners focused on commemorating her brother's life to be with Jesus first and alone. And I pray we all find solace in Jesus first like she did in our times of grief. Then she says in verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. At this point, she's still searching the meaning of what Jesus told the messengers by the sisters. He's 
He said this sickness will not end in death. She remembers that. These messengers would have returned that message from Jesus to her. And she's still now wondering what exactly what that means, but entrusting herself to Christ along the way. Very much reminds me of 1 Peter 4.19 when Peter writes to a very suffering people of God scattered across Asia and Asia Minor. As you suffer, entrust yourself to a faithful creator while you continue to remain faithful yourselves. She's come to this confident spiritual disposition in her mind and her heart to Jesus. You know what else she's admitting here in verse 22? That Jesus has a very intimate prayer life. Do you see that? Even now, I know whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. Another reminder to us, my friends, that when we go to Jesus first, we go to him and then to the Father because of him. It's a tremendous reminder to us in the environment of prayer that we enjoy our creator as his own son did. Those are necessary, special, quiet, and intimate times when really no other person closest to us on earth could minister to us better than when we're alone with Jesus and prayer to our Heavenly Father. Jesus says in verse 23, your brother is going to rise again. And Martha's response, telling us that her eschatology is pretty solid, her understanding of resurrection in the Old Testament is astute. She's grown in her maturity. She may have heard of Christ's statement already in John chapter 5, verses 27 to 29 that we've already preached upon, where Jesus says very, very clearly, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. She would have known and remembered by way of oral tradition the words of Daniel. In our Bibles, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. God records for us many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt she would have been taught and remembered Job's words from Job chapter 18 where he admitted that there's a time for every man to be torn from the security of his temporary tent You would have remembered Job's words where he admitted that every man's life is short-lived like a flower. It flees like a shadow and doesn't remain. She would remember Job's words of resurrection 
where he confidently proclaimed what? In my flesh I shall see God. So Martha is settled with Lazarus. She, she knows he will live again. And, and doesn't that give us encouragement as God's people today? Certainly we understand the resurrection, if you know your Bibles well, of Old Testament saints compared to the resurrection of New Testament saints at the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the resurrection is, is a hope for us, and it was a hope for Martha. Would she know that Lazarus is spiritually alive? As his body is entombed? Would she be familiar with the true story of the rich man and another Lazarus in the New Testament? Most likely. She would have fully comprehended its meaning, possibly. Would she have known that the spirit of a person continues to live though their body's dead? But at least we know she's mourning. She's mourning the the loss of the life of her brother and she's finding peace with Jesus and now in her own doctrine. And that's really the best two places for any of us to begin when we're hurting. Our Savior and His Word and His promises. It's good for us in verse 25 to remember that Jesus is still just keeping company with Martha. It's fascinating to me how particular and how personal and how compassionate his care is for this dear lady and the few moments he had with her. And don't think for a moment, my friends, that Jesus isn't interested in ministering to you in the same personal, compassionate way in the time of your grief. Jesus, in, in reading this text, I saw one author uh, titled his notes on this text, Jesus is never late. So well, he's late, he's been dead for four days, he missed the opportunity, and Jesus is never late in so many ways in this text, and he's certainly just in time for his ministry to Martha in her grief, and he takes time with her in some very special ways we'll continue to see. And it's here he proclaims to just Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He uses the tetragrammaton of the Old Testament Hebrew language yet again. And some people literally interpret this proclamation, this claim that Jesus makes as literally reading, I am resurrection. I am Life. If you look at the, at the grammar of the text, though, both mean the same thing. I am the resurrection, I am the life at the same time. Resurrection is life, and life is resurrection. You remember John 1, 3 and 4 that we preached on some months ago. John begins, all things came into being through Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being 
that has come into being. In him was, can you say it with me? In him was life. And that life was the light of men. In a few short weeks in John 14, Jesus will proclaim, I am the way, truth, and life. In John 10.10, in the Good Shepherd narrative and parable, where he claims to be the door, Jesus said, I have come to give you life, and life more abundantly he could, because he is the divine definition of life, and that eternal in nature. Do you remember Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where the Apostle Paul writes and, and encourages the Colossian people's hearts? And, and I'll read this for you very quickly. Uh, Paul boldly writes, He is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Life exists in Jesus. He is eternal life. Everything in the creation world that lives, Jesus gave it life. He gave you and me physical life. He imparted to you his own eternal life the moment that you believed. And when we breathe our last physically, the eternal life already imparted to us at salvation remains as Jesus remains who granted it to us. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be what? Immediately present with the Lord when our physical life ceased to exist. That eternal life, which he chose us before the foundation of the world to enjoy, when imparted to us the moment we believe, it's an unending reality. It's an unending refrain for everyone here who's in Christ Jesus. That's why we can sing the hymn, It is not death to die. Jesus goes on to say, He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's what he meant. You believe eternal life's imparted at that moment. And even if you die, you don't die. That's physical death, spiritual life. Eternal life has no period at the end of it. And remember why Jesus came and why John wrote of Jesus that people would believe, enjoy this impartation of eternal life because they believe he is the Son of God and that in believing they might have what? Might have life through his name. There it is again, right? And then he turns to Martha. Remember, he's still one-on-one. -on -one. Martha, do you believe this? And her answer is amazing. As a matter of fact, 
It's actually a rhetorical question. He knows she believes this. So she doesn't even say, yes, period, let's move on. He gives her the opportunity to rehearse. Think about this, how precious this is. He gives her the opportunity with him to rehearse who he is. To enjoy him more by the very recitation of three facts that she knows to be true about her Jesus. But isn't that what God does in a moment of our grief when we're with him? He gives us an opportunity in our times of guttural despair to just stop and enjoy him. And he allows us to just remain there as he remains with us, never leaving or forsaking us. And he gives us moments, sometimes hours, sometimes days, just to stop and be compelled by grace to remember all that we know is true about him to settle our hearts. I can remember going through a, a, what looks now in the rearview mirror of my life, a pretty benign time of trial. It was great to me back then, but I remember when I was going through uh, eight different orthopedic surgeries, maybe nine before I graduated high school, and, and God in his providence for some reason was taking my, my sports career away one little frame at a time. And um, I can remember heading into my final surgery and um, my, my dad, uh, when he would come up and, and visit me in the hospital, he would always, you know, bring a Bible. He would bring mine. Um, I was going through a time in my life where I was really wrestling with God why he was putting me all through this. I was a pretty good kid. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I was born again. I was trying to serve the Lord. I, uh, I generally couldn't think of anything in my life that the Lord was chastening me for disobedient living. And he was taking away what I really, really loved to do and what I was decent at. And I was really even trying to use it for his glory. Why are you still taking this all away? And I would wrestle this out, not just with the Lord, but with my dad. And my dad would just leave my Bible and walk out of the room. And he said, Tim, the, the best place you need to be right now is with Jesus. It's with God and his promises. And he said, I can't help you. I can't help you. That was tough for a kid that's 14, 15, 16, 17, and indeed 18 years, four straight years of surgeries, right? And crutches and scars that got infected and threats of having to amputate my right ankle because of infection. And um, Mercy, what a time. But my dad, who's a pastor, who's also my father, leaves me to God. And I'm so glad he did. Because I found him to be enough. He let me learn of him. Those quiet, painful moments, he allowed me, by his grace and mercy, to be patient with me, to be reminded, to be self-reminded of who he was and why he was allowing what to happen to happen. But to remind me of the great and precious promises he'd given me as a teenager, as one of his sheep and his children. 
for Martha, he asked this question. She's alone with him. Do you believe? Yes, Lord, I have believed. She had obtained this understanding of eternal life. And then she expounds with some good, not only good eschatology, but some good Christology. She says, you're the Christ. I not only believe, I know you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one of Israel. This doesn't sound like a fretting, immature lady, does it? Sounds like a hurting, growing lady. And by the way, those of you that may still be of the impression that mature people don't deeply grieve, please pay attention to the text. Grieving is a gift from God for all of these purposes. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the one who has come into the world. You are the Logos of God. Yes, Lord, I believe. And so I would ask you this morning, I may not even know you, do you believe Jesus? Do you know him? Do you understand why he came? And if you don't, I, I commend him to you. That you might know his joy and peace and his life eternal. It's offered to you as a good gift. So I'd ask you to please embrace the love Jesus has for this family and for this person in this moment as he still allowed her to deeply grieve the loss of her dear brother and yet have her theology, her doctrine reaffirmed and her heart strengthened with the time that she's offered with Jesus. Verse 28, she goes and finds her sister Mary in secret. Mary comes. The explanation of his time with Mary is much shorter. Much shorter. The assumption is here that that. Mary's probably already had these facts that Martha's affirmed in her heart, previously affirmed. I think we might be able to see that from the story in Luke 10. I don't know. But all it says here of Mary is that she responded the same way Martha did and that there just happened to be probably a couple hundred people that followed her quickly out of the home thinking she was going to the tomb to mourn and they were going to mourn with her. It's day four of seven. So the briefness of the encounter with Jesus and Mary, is, it, it screams much truth and much practical reality to me. Mary had been a person that had opened up her heart to the Lord in very personal devotion, which means that she most likely, and from what we see about the throng of those mourning with her and with the family, that she had also opened up her heart relationally to many people in Bethany and between Bethany and Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Mary become a very good friend to a lot of people, apparently just like Lazarus and in time Martha too. She knew how to love, we know that. Remember the beginning of chapter 11? Mary and Martha loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. 
I'm going to read a quote to you by a famous author, C.S. Lewis, that I think is necessary for this junction of the sermon this morning, and I want you to give ear to it, if you would, especially those of you who have loved and tried to love in sincere ways and been burnt in the past, whether it be by spiritual leader or church member or by family member, and I hope it's encouraging to you. C.S. Lewis says, to love at all, to love at all is to be in, is to be completely vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe in a casket of your own selfishness. There it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. It will cost you to love the way Christ loved. There are parents here this morning whose children have broken your hearts. Husbands have broken the hearts of their wives and wives of their husbands. Friends, close relations will break your heart. All these things will happen. But you've got to maintain the friendship. You've got to maintain the relationship. Especially if it's in Christ where forgiveness and a forward walk is available in him. Now think about how offended, we're stating that they haven't been offended, but how offended Mary and Martha would have been actually confronting Jesus with his lateness when we know Jesus is never late. They could have done that. We're going to find out here in just a second as we close that a lot of unbelieving Jews were ready to blame him. Remember what we read in that last verse, 38? But they weren't. Those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who know his love and those who love like he does, they persevere in relationships no matter what the circumstance. I think it was Ben Franklin who said, I'm calling this from memory, certainly not a, the godliest of men, but he says, choose your friends slowly, but don't lose your friends relationships have to endure, especially spiritually. Well, they go back to John chapter 11, if you're in Colossians with me as we wrap up here this morning. Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping he was deeply moved in spirit and in and troubled folks I don't know how to tell you this all this word simply means it would have been metaphorically defined in that time in that culture um, and related to a snorting horse they would have immediately acquainted that with an angry beast an angry animal Apparently, this text says that 
Jesus is angry. He's deeply moved. This is, this is an all-consuming emotion of Jesus the man. What would he possibly be angry with? Well, knowing God, he's angry probably at the sin that caused his dear friend's death, for the wages of sin is death. He's probably indignant that his dear sisters are grieving so deeply because they had to endure what sin had done to ravage the body and take the life of their their dear brother. He's, He's upset that people have to mourn so grievously because of the effects of sin. Could he also be disturbed watching unbelieving Jews mourn too? people that had seen him heal thousands. People that were already familiar with him raising Jairus' daughter from the dead and the, the widow of Nain's son from the dead. These people that had heard him preach and yet they are still in unbelief and they're there mourning the loss of Lazarus with his special family. Could he be upset with them? So understanding that Jesus is feeling this way and, and, and he's, he asks, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And there Jesus wept. And in verse 35, the term for weeping here is different than it was used previously. This is, this is, a, uh, this is, a, this is an explosion of emotion. This is an outburst, a shout of agony, a shout of grief. And can I say this as the God-man probably feeling grief, anger, sorrow at a cosmic level, if you will. No one can feel pain like Jesus can because he's the sinless son of God. But aren't you glad because we know that he's also our advocate that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Aren't you so glad that you can entrust yourself to a Jesus the eternal life giver who feels pain and agony and all these emotions on such a deeper level than we ever could. So everyone's present, the believers, the unbelievers, the family hired wailers and the attombed Lazarus still divinely under the scope of Jesus' compassion and concern. Plus he himself, Jesus, is fully human. And this text is just really a, a description of the fullness of bare humanity. As a matter of fact, what do the unbelieving people say? Verse 36, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. And this is phileo, right? Look what a deep relationship Jesus had with Lazarus. And now, there's all kinds of wonder about this statement. They could have been wondering, why would Jesus not have that kind of love relationship with me like he's had with them? I don't know. But they are recognizing that Jesus was a man that knew how to love and to, and to be loved. We wish we could give these onlookers 
who made this statement, the greater benefit of the doubt, until we come to that final verse where some of them said, not all of them, but some of them said, could he not have healed him before he died? Still skeptical of how Jesus functions and therefore doubting the nature of who he is and why he had come. And yet what patience Jesus has with unbelief. What mercy. Is there something here that you and I can learn of Jesus and his patience with unbelief? Do you tire of people around you that you've lived Jesus faithfully before, that you've spoken of him joyfully with for maybe years, maybe decades, and yet they still say and do things that completely destroy you in a moment? Do you tire of that? Well, apparently Jesus did too, but he still loved. He still had mercy. It didn't keep him from moving forward to perform the miracle and demonstration of who he was and why he had come. So maybe from Christ's example, we all could learn a little bit more patience with the radical unbelief around us who maybe even doubt your motives as to why and how you love. Continue to try to reach them as Jesus did. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this next section of the Lazarus narrative and through these interactions with Mary, Martha, and their friends in the community. I pray, Lord, that we would learn of Jesus, not just his nature, not just his person, but literally from his words, his actions. Learn from his perfect humanity and how to relate with our Father, how to relate with those who are his children, how to personally endure through conflict, how to continue to persevere in our relationships with those in our lives who are yet to believe. Give us wisdom, Lord, in all these things, in all these relationships, even during the time of our grief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.